Uh, today we're going to be reading from Romans 11, 25 through 36. Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion and will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you are at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by, mercy, by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. I love it when a plan comes together. Now, if you're a child of the 80s, you may know where that comes from. Raise your hand if you know where that quote comes from. Pam gets it. Where's it come from, Pam? 18. From John Hannibal Smith, who was the leader of the 18. Now, if you're not a child of the 80s, maybe the 2000s, I think the movie came out back then. But the 18 was this group of four uh, military guys who had been unjustly tried, and they ended up being kind of uh, guns for hire, but they were always out doing good. And every episode involved John Hannibal Smith taking the other three guys in the team and coming up with a crazy plan that solves the problem that they had. And every show ended after the 18 won with John Hannibal Smith saying, I love it when a plan comes together. And speaking of a plan coming together, we saw that just last weekend, right? If you were a Chiefs fan and you, you watched the parade at all, there was, there, there was a moment during um, the, the parade when they were all speaking on the stage and you listen to Clark Hunt and, and others talk about their plan. All that they had been working behind the scenes well before there was any sort of parade for a Super Bowl, that they were working to put pieces in places so that some result would happen. And we're going to see in the message today that Paul is talking about how he loves it when a plan comes together. It's like the end of the episode of the A-Team when John Smith gets to say that. Paul is wrapping up really 11 chapters of, of a message about what God's been doing, specifically three chapters, verses 9 through 11, where he's laying out in more detail how is God working with the Jewish nation that he had kind of engaged with with Abraham 2,000 years before Paul ever lived. God had been working with the Jewish people as his chosen people to bring the Messiah into the world. And now Paul's wrestling in these chapters with why were the Jewish people not responding to the good news of Jesus being their Messiah, the one God had promised all this time that they could see in the Old Testament? The Jews weren't saying yes to that and had not said yes to Jesus. They, in fact, crucified him. And yet the Gentiles were saying yes. 
They were turning to Christ and accepting him. And Paul's been laying out this argument about how that has happened and why God's doing it. And now at the end of chapter 11, he kind of sums up, and I think I can hear him saying, I love it, when a plan comes together. So we want to look at that plan today. Last week, Matt had kind of brought us into this place in chapter 11 where Paul had turned his attention to the Gentile believers in Rome, and he had told them not to be arrogant or or full of themselves because God had hardened the Jewish people so that they could come into the faith, that they were hearing the gospel. And it seems that some of the Gentile Christians were starting to go, ah, God's chosen us and not them. He's rejected them because he wants us, and we're so much better. And Paul's telling them, don't think that way. And he uses this illustration of an olive tree, and he says, if there were natural branches of this tree that were broken off so that you could be grafted in, although you Gentiles are a wild olive tree, don't think that God can't graft the natural branches back in also. Paul's working really hard to see that the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome, who are believers, can be united as one in Christ. This is a theme of Paul constantly. How can these two groups of people who are historically antagonistic to each other be united? And he's seeing them divide over a false understanding of the gospel. And in chapters 9 through 11, he's trying to explain that. And so here at the end, we're going to see how Paul winds up this discussion about how God's been working through history. He had a plan from the very beginning. He's not winging it. He's not making it up as he goes. It wasn't that it just happened on a fluke. It was that God had been working throughout history. From the moment he spoke creation into being, God's been working to the consummation of his plan. So let's jump right in. It's page 947 of the House Bible, if you have it. And look at verse 25. The first thing I want you to see as you look at God's plan is that we need to humbly accept God's plan. Verse 25 says this, lest you be wise in your own sight. Now Paul's saying this to the Gentile Christians in Rome who were thinking that God had rejected the Jewish people, was going to have nothing else to do with them. And so that probably they were beginning to say, how can we push them out of our group? So he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul starts with, I don't want you misunderstanding what God's doing. Because it was causing them to behave and act in ways that weren't in alignment with God's plan. He says, I need you to understand what God's doing in history. What he's doing right now in Paul's own day that Paul, year after year, had been living with in his ministry. We're going to look at that in just a little bit. But he says, I don't want you to think you have the right answer in the way you're behaving. The way they were doing things, the things they were thinking about how God had rejected the Jewish people and didn't want anything else to do with them. And now the Gentiles were his people, but not the Jewish people. He says, I don't want you to be arrogant in that way. We've all had moments, right, when we had the wrong answer, but we just wouldn't listen to the person who had the right answer. Uh, A while back, if you live anywhere where you get to use the new bridge that opened going into the Target uh, shopping center, we live, like, we had to suffer and go through Walmart area to get over there, but our neighborhood now, we can go directly into that new shopping area because the bridge opened. And uh, right after it opened, uh, Leslie, my wife, and my daughter, Ashton, who's now driving on her own, so I'll just leave that up to y'all. It's a white Prius. Um, They were heading back from that shopping center, and Leslie said, hey, turn left, we'll go over the bridge. And it's, it's like three minutes to our house from there. 
and actually said, no, 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 it's quicker to go down to 152 and then circle back around on the thing and then go down 152 all the way to our house. And Leslie's like, no, it's not quicker. Go, go over the bridge. And Ashton just turns right. She's wise in her own eyes and it takes much longer to get back than it would have taken. Paul's saying, look, don't be wise in your own eyes. I want you to be, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. And the mystery is that the Jewish people have been partially hardened so that the fullness of the Gentiles can come in. But let me explain this word mystery briefly. In Scripture, when Paul uses this word mystery, it's not something like a murder mystery like we would see in a, in a movie or something. It's a part of God's plan that hasn't been revealed yet, that God hasn't shown yet. Now, he's already shown it. He's told Paul. He said, this is what I'm doing now. So Paul's letting the Roman Christians know that. Uh, every summer, our youth go on a mystery road trip. How many of you, any of you have been on the mystery road trip? So Xavier has. The, point of the, the whole point of the mystery road trip is that when you get on the bus, you don't know where you're going. Now, you know who knows where they're going? Andy, our youth pastor, he knows exactly where they're going, and then he reveals to them, here's where we're heading. And so the mystery is something that hasn't been shown yet. So Paul's saying, look, here's the mystery of what God's been doing in his plan that he, haven't, he hasn't shown up to this point, but now Paul's telling them this is what he's doing. He's revealing it to them, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So I want us to spend a little bit of time looking at God's plan, the partial hardening of the Jews and the fullness of the Gentiles. And what does that mean? How can we understand what's going on? In Romans, if we just look in Romans, you can flip back to chapter 9. And this idea of hardening, and, and we've already preached sermons on this, but I want to refresh you, says this. Paul talking about how God can, gets to do what he wants because he's God. He says, what shall we say then in verse 14? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. If you go back and read the Old Testament, the Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt, and God tells Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And even tells Moses, but Pharaoh's going to harden his heart, and I'm going to harden his heart, and he's not going to let you go really easily. And so we have this whole story of these plagues, these miraculous signs that God does to show Pharaoh that he is the true God. And when we read that story, almost 3,500 years later, we're still reading that story God said, the reason I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and by the way, Pharaoh was also hardening his own heart when you read the story, so he wasn't an unwilling participant. It was so that God would receive more glory. So Paul, in Romans 9, talks about how God had, Pharaoh, had hardened Pharaoh's heart, and a Jewish person would have said amen to that. Yes, that was good because we were able to escape. We were able to be saved. Look in verse 11, chapter 11, verses 7 through 12. He now talks about the Jewish people. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What he means here is Israel did not find righteousness with God by trying to follow the law and create their own righteousness. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, 
Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, this is what Paul's talking about, this plan. He said there's a hardening that has come upon the Jewish people. Now, when Paul writes about this hardening, he's not saying about individuals. He's talking about the Jewish people as a people are now hardened because he says in these same chapters that he's praying that Jewish people would come to faith in Christ. But he, he's saying that they're not going to come in large numbers, that there is a hardening on the people, but he's not talking of individuals here. But he's saying this is what God has done, that he's placed a hardening on them. And this is part of his plan that we go, how does that make sense? That doesn't seem to work. We, we want to push against that. But Paul's just living this out, this, this hardening. And he says there's a reason for it until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Paul's saying a partial hardening has come upon the Jewish people. I think that partial hardening works two ways. It's not that every single Jewish person cannot say yes to the gospel, and it's also not forever. So it's a quantity type thing, and it's also a length, a temporal, a time type hardening. So he's saying when the fullness of the Gentiles, when the full number of Gentiles who are going to be saved come in, then this hardening is removed. And then he says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. So I'm going to make a pitch for our podcast because this all Israel, who it is, is a real big debate. Is it like all the Jewish people or is it all the Christians, Jews and Gentiles combined? I'll tip my hat. I think it's the second. I think all Israel means all Christians, Jew and Gentile, will be saved. Listen to the podcast this week if you want all the details about that. We don't have time here. And it doesn't change the meaning of what Paul's saying in the big picture. So beyond the pulpit will come out later this week. I'll be getting with um, Lucas to work on that. So I wanted to give you a heads up on that, that it doesn't change the overall flow of what's happening in this verse. But it does have uh, some impact. So stay tuned for that. So Paul is saying that God has hardened the Jewish people. We can read in Romans 2, by the way, that Paul talks about people storing up wrath for the day of wrath. One of the purposes of God hardening someone is so that the judgment, when it's finally given, is, is shown to be uh, just and right. So he lets someone kind of store up their sinfulness. God could have judged Pharaoh the first time he said no. He could have just said, fine, you're done. And God would have been just and right. But he lets Pharaoh persist in his stubbornness so that when he does judge him, that judgment is shown to be true and right to everyone who sees it. And so this hardening has come upon them until the full number of the Gentiles will come in. What does that mean? I think we can get an answer for this if we read through the book of Acts. Now, we don't have time today to read the whole book. But I want to run you through kind of what's going on in Acts and how Paul lived this issue. When he talks about a mystery that there's this partial hardening, that the Jewish people aren't saying yes to Jesus, and the Gentiles are, this was not coffee shop theology talk for Paul. I teach at a seminary, and there's a whole lot of times we'll sit around with students, and we drink coffee, and we just talk about theological issues. And that's, I love it. It's great fun. But that's not what Paul's doing. Paul's living this every day. If all we do, students from Midwestern, is talk about theology, you really haven't done much. You have to actually do the thing. So I want to show you what Paul was doing. So follow along. If you get confused or lost, 
send an email to Rustin at NBCKC.org, and I'll send you all the notes about this section. But I just want to run you through the book of Acts and let you see what Paul was living day after day, year after year. It starts in Acts 1.8. Jesus is talking to the disciples in the upper room. Paul's not a part of the group yet. This is Peter, James, John, the other ones. And he says, I need you to wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you're going to be empowered to be my witness to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And he sets up this kind of missionary pattern. They're going to spread the gospel in Jerusalem, the heart of Jewish faith, to Judea, the land it was in, to Samaria, and then all the way to the ends of the earth, which was always the plan in the Old Testament. So the Jewish people wait. Chapter 2, we have Pentecost where the Spirit's given. 3,000 Jewish people say yes. And then in chapter 3 of Acts, and I'm going to put the uh, passage on the screen, Peter and John heal a man in the temple. And then all these Jewish people gather around to hear this message about Jesus. And this is what uh, Peter says in Acts 3, 17, 21. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he, has, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive in the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So let me explain what Peter says, because I think this is key to understanding what Paul writes in Romans 11. Peter, talking to Jewish people, says, you've acted in ignorance, and so did the rulers like Caiaphas who crucified our Savior. You need to repent, because when you repent as a nation, then Jesus, who has returned to heaven, who is waiting there to come back to bring times of refreshing, this new heaven and new earth, but he's there until they repent. Peter said, if you guys repent, if the nation accepts Jesus as their Messiah, then he'll come back and the new heavens and new earth begin. But they didn't accept. What we see right after this is that Peter and John are called before the leadership of the Jewish nation and told not to talk about Jesus anymore. We then see in Acts 7 that Stephen, still in Jerusalem, tells the Jewish people about like the Old Testament and how God was working. He lays out God's plan and says, and Jesus is the answer to all of those things. And then they pick up stones and they kill him. And we meet a man named Saul, later called Paul, who is standing there holding the coats of all the men doing the killing. And then Paul becomes the chief persecutor of the Christians. When this persecution breaks out in Acts 7, the Christians then scatter back to their home. They had all been living in Jerusalem. No one had left. They all scatter back to where they came from all over the Roman Empire. We read in Acts 8 that the gospel went to the Samaritans, and an Ethiopian eunuch, we begin to see it spreading. Acts 9, we meet Paul. He is converted by Christ. Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus, and then he is given a mission to the Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, the nations that Jesus had talked about in Acts 1. Acts 10, we see that Peter is sent to the house of a Gentile called Cornelius, and he becomes a Christian and is baptized and becomes part of the community, which was shocking in that day. For us, it's just like, oh, we read it and pass by. This was monumental, earth-changing, worldview-changing for these people. Then in Acts 13, we see Paul who's going about his missionary work from city to city, and he comes to Antioch. And he preached at Antioch, and people were interested. And the next week, a large crowd gathered to listen. And look in verse chapter 
Acts 13, verses 44 to 47, it'll be on the screen, says this. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Imagine that, Paul speaking, and the whole city shows up, Jews and Gentiles. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Remember what Paul said in Acts, I mean, in Romans 11, that by the Gentile salvation, the Jews will be made jealous? He says they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, to the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The ending of Jesus' missionary endeavor. Judea, Samaria, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So Paul, in his first kind of getting up and really having a, a, a moment of evangelizing a crowd, eventually says, we're moving to the Gentiles. Acts 14, Paul is run out of town in Acts 13. He goes to Iconium. In Acts 14, and a large number of Jews and Gentiles believed him, but some unbelieving Jews poisoned their minds. And Paul had to flee Iconium. He then goes to a city called Lystra. And when he's in Lystra, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who opposed him down there, and do the same thing. So Paul's experience is, I go from city to city, and I have Jewish people who keep opposing me. Some are believing, but I have this opposition that makes all of my efforts kind of fall apart in every city I go to. And in some of these cities, he gets punched. Same things happens in Acts 17 in Thessalonica. He then goes down to Berea, and we hear that the Berean Jews were more noble. They looked at Scripture, but then the Thessalonican Jews came down and stirred everybody up, and Paul had to flee again. Then in Acts 18, Paul lands in Corinth. And if you look at verses 4 and 7, it says this, And he reasoned in the synagogue, that's where the Jewish people gathered for worship every Sabbath, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And this picture here, I think, captures for us what's going on. Paul was in the synagogue where the Jewish people gathered for worship. And he was talking with them. Eventually, they turned on him. Not every Jewish person, but the group turned on him. And he says, okay, I'm going next door, and I'll meet here. Now, we think that's no big deal. But you can drive up and down the streets of this city, and there's churches, different types of churches all over the place, right? And you'll come into some of those churches, and some of them you probably wouldn't go into. In the same way that the vast majority of Jewish people in Paul's day are not going into Titius Justice's place. These two groups never kind of associated with each other. So Paul's just next door, just next door to the synagogue, but he might as well be miles and miles and miles away as far as who's showing up in that building. And Paul is living out this experience of this separation. I come over here to the synagogue. People say yes. Some Jews say yes, but the vast majority say no. They turn on me. He gets beat up, and then he goes to the Gentiles. It's his pattern over and over. See, he's not just talking about this issue of a partial hardening. He's living it in city after city after city. He goes to Ephesus. Acts 19, verses 8 and 10 says this. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn 
and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way. Before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, another Gentile-type gathering place. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul ends his time in the book of Acts. The book of Acts ends with Paul eventually, after Acts 19, getting arrested. He ends up in Rome. Now, he's already written the letter to the Romans before he gets there. But he gets arrested. He ends up in Rome. And the book ends with Jewish leadership in Rome coming to Paul to hear what he has to say. And some of them believing, but the vast majority saying no. And Paul ending with, it's just what God said. You can't see. You can't hear. I'm going to the Gentiles. Paul's living this. Paul, when he talks about this partial hardening of the Jews and that they are the enemies of the gospel, he's living that. Look what it says. He says, there is a partial hardening that has come upon them until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Look at verse 28. As regards the gospel, that's the good news of Jesus, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, as far as the gospel goes, the Jewish people were enemies so that the Gentiles could believe. Now, we hear that, and again, we want to sit around in classrooms and kind of ponder, what does that mean? What does that look like? For Paul, it was everyday life. He went to the synagogue, and he said, Jesus is the Savior. He died for us. Let me show you from our scriptures what that means. They said no to him. They opposed him. They chased him out of the synagogue, sometimes beating him. And he goes to the Gentiles. Because they're rejecting Jesus, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Now, there's a massive plan that God's doing that involves the whole world here. But Paul sees it every city he goes into. I went into the Jewish people. They said no. I go to the Gentiles. Because they rejected me. That's why he says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Now, he's not saying every Jewish person is an enemy because Paul had a lot of Jewish people who had said yes to Jesus. But he had the scars on his back to show that the Jewish people were opposing the message of who Jesus was. And then he would go to the Gentiles. And the same thing had happened in Rome. And so Paul's living with this message that they're enemies for the gospel, but as regards election, God's choice of the Jewish nation to be his people, it says they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, back in the book of Genesis. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And this language of the gifts and calling of God becomes so important. And that they're being irrevocable becomes important. Because what this means is that God is faithful. You see, what the Gentile Christians in Rome were thinking was this. Well, God had made some promises back then, but he's doing something new now with us. So we have promises, and he'll keep those, but he didn't have to keep these. If God's found to be a God who goes, I promised you something, but you know what? I'm not going to do it. Forget about it. Then we go, how can we trust that God? Paul's arguing throughout this letter that God is faithful, that he is going to accomplish what he had promised. And so even now, while the Jewish people, he says, are enemies of the gospel, God's not rejected them so as to do, have nothing to do with them, but he has hardened them so that the Gentiles can come in. And he's done all of this. The next point, 
that God's plan highlights God's mercy. Look what he says. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. This is the point of God's plan. That at one time, the Gentiles were disobedient. If you read your Old Testament, you're going, ah, the Jewish people are God's people. He's working with them. But all these other nations are opposed to them. They're running their own way. They're not following God. But now mercy's been shown to them and to us. We're part of that group, the Gentiles. He says, now God's shown mercy to us because of the Jewish disobedience. This goes all the way back to their rejection of Jesus. John in his gospel says it this way. Jesus came to his own, to the Jewish people, and his own received him not. And because they rejected him and crucified him, the the salvation of Christ goes out to the whole world. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He says, God's had mercy on us, on the Gentiles, but he's also going to have mercy on the Jewish people. He has consigned everybody to disobedience. Everyone is trapped in sin, the Bible says. So that he can have mercy on everybody. And when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, then he says, then the hardening is removed on the Jewish people, and then all Israel will be saved. God's plan is to save his creation, Jews and Gentiles. And he's been working this plan all along, and it points out his mercy Paul is pointing us here that God's plan shouldn't be a speculative issue for us about why is he doing it that way, but for us to see his mercy. And this plan is so overwhelming that Paul ends with this praise to God. It's so massive. It's so hard to understand. Look what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. At the end of all of this deep discussion Paul's been doing for chapter after chapter, he pauses and says, God's ways are so incomprehensible. They're so amazing. All we can do is pause and worship him and know that it's from him and through him and for him. It is for his glory that if we are going to understand God's plan, we need to understand that it's first and foremost about God's own glory. And we have to get this straight in order to praise God for his plan. If we think it's about us primarily, then we're going to miss the whole point of what God's doing. His plan isn't primarily about him, about us. It's about him. And Paul ends this whole section on this praise. So what do we do with this? It's a complicated piece of scripture. What can we take away from this? One thing is trust God has a plan that comes together for the whole world and for you. We've said this repeatedly. If God can work out this massive worldwide millennial stretching plan, then we can trust that he knows what he's doing. We can trust that he knows what he's doing for us individually also. And so when you're in those moments and you're worried about, can I trust God? Do I understand what he's doing? My world seems like it's falling apart. Everything that's happening doesn't make sense. Know that God has a plan. And that God's in control, even in moments when it seems that he's not. I imagine Paul had many moments 
as he was being chased out of a city, being beaten, getting another set of scars on his body, he probably went, God, do you know what you're doing? This makes no sense to me. But then he would go, okay, God, I can look at your word. I can read your scripture, and I can see that you do know what you're doing. Help me trust you more. Help me trust you. And then he went to the next city. And he probably went to the next city going, okay, God, I hear your plan, but let me see what happens here. And he watches it played out again. Second, God's mercy is for everyone. No one is outside of God's mercy. That we cannot exclude anyone from the gospel. Not based on race, not based on cultural status, not based on where they live in the world. There is no human being that is outside the reach of God's mercy. And that we as Christians should exclude the gospel from. There's no one. There's no one that Christ can't save. He's taken the sin of the world upon himself. He's consigned all to disobedience. If you're a Christian, a believer here, you were consigned to disobedience. You lived as a rebel to God, and then you were shown mercy. And because we've been shown mercy, we can show mercy to those who are rebels. God showed mercy to Paul, who killed Christians, who had murdered Christians had celebrated the death of Christians in God's name. And God has shown mercy to him. So Paul understands what it means to show mercy to someone, to offer them the gospel when he knows you may get punched in the face for this. But the mercy of God goes out to everyone. And finally, the story of the world does not have us as the main character. We are all supporting actors in God's story. This creation is about his glory. And he's the one that the attention should be focused on. Uh, Ashton, my oldest daughter, is in theater. And at the end of a, a, a musical or a play, they always have the actors come out and you know, everyone stands up and they're all applauding for them. And so you would have like the, the supporting actors and then ones who get a few more lines and then the ones who get a lot of lines. And then at the very end, they bring out like the star of the show, right? And everyone is waiting and that person comes out and the crowd reacts because all the attention gets pointed right to that person who has played the leading role, that person in Scripture, in this world, is God. We're supporting actors. I'm a supporting actor. You're a supporting actor. That means we have a role to play. We, we are part of what God's doing, but ultimately, we all turn, and he comes on the stage, and we point to him. We give him the glory for what he's doing. This plan is not about us. It's not about my happiness, my fulfillment, your fulfillment, your happiness. It's about him. We're doing our parts in this play, all the things we do day to day, week in and week out, to support God and the glory that is given to him. We turn to him and worship him. When we gather here on a Sunday, we are not coming primarily, hopefully, to go, okay, God, I'm coming so that you can do something for me, so that you can give me something. He will do that, but we should come with this attitude. God, I'm coming to tell you how amazing you are. I'm gathering on Sunday morning to worship you, to point to you, to put our attention on you, not ourselves. Now, in doing that, God works in our lives, and he moves in our lives. He says, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things get added to us. But if we turn the attention on us, we've missed the point of what Paul's doing here at the end of this thing. God's amazing plan 
should cause us to pause and go, it is from him. God the Father created this world through the Son and the power of the Spirit. It's from him. It's through him. What God's doing in the world is being worked out through God himself as the Son becomes incarnate, dies on a cross, is risen again. The Spirit indwells his followers, and it is for him. This world is not for us, ultimately. It's for Jesus. We are all just supporting actors in his story, in his play. But there's no greater place to be. If you try to put yourself as the lead character in that story, the story crumbles and falls apart, and you will crumble and fall apart. That's why God calls us away from sin and darkness and self-absorption to himself, to his glory, to his righteousness. He has a plan for this world. And I think I can hear Paul saying as he writes the end of this chapter, oh, I love it when God's plan comes together. As the worship team comes up to lead us in worship, if you're here and you have questions about God's plan for your life, you have questions about what he is wanting to do, come back in the back and see me. I would love to talk with you. You can write it on your Connect card, and I'll reach out to you this week, and we'll set up a time so we can talk. I don't want you to leave here if you have questions without being able to get those questions answered. 